and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about accessibility. Many of us are fortunate enough that we don't have to consider this topic, but today we will be discussing the many ways that developers accommodate the gamers among us that need a helping hand. To give me a helping hand, discussing accessibility is the only other person I know that inverts his Y-axis, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Steve. I'm just a uh, left-handed man living in a standard Y-axis world. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that being left-handed is is any sort of disability. No, no, it's just, you know, the struggles are real. I got to deal with left-handed... Left-handed problems from day to day, and, uh, <laughs> always switching. It's it's real tell hard. Me, man. Tell me, tell me one. I want to hear one issue that you that you actually have to go through. Uh, as a left-handed person, yeah. Um, sometimes it's uncomfortable for me to use scissors. Mm. Is that real? Is that a real thing? Yeah, a little bit. Sometimes they just, they just don't quite. They don't. They don't cut right. It's hard to cut a straight line with right-handed scissors if I'm using my left hand. Now, is there somewhere? That you can actually procure left-handed scissors, like in The Simpsons. Yeah, but who has the time? <laughs> well, I guess it doesn't bother you that much then. No, I'm getting by just fine. I think the y, <laughs> the y-axis, on the other hand, that's uh, not negotiable. That always has to change. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jared, we have an amazing topic today and an amazing guest to talk about it with. Because joining us today is a man who makes math look good, he makes games look good, and he's a host on the amazing Spawn on Me podcast. I, I can't say enough good things about that podcast. Please welcome Sharif Jackson. Sharif, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm doing good, guys. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on. Um, definitely looking forward to uh, having a chat with y'all. Um, thanks for the kind words about the podcast as well. And uh, I do invert my y-axis for certain things, namely. Oh, so, we got uh, one. Certain things. <laughs> uh, we are we are a rare breed because all of us yeah. all of us now in this chat room invert our y-axis, but. Man, yeah. it is no, hard to find someone else that does. No, I I inverted it for the original Star Fox on the Super Nintendo. Uh, I believe that was the default setting, um, and because of that, anytime I play a game where I'm flying in first person, I have to invert it because that Star Fox memory um, is in there. But but for all other games, I don't invert, so it's kind of weird. Mm, all right, I, well, I pretty we'll, much we'll only invert for the flight games. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> it's weird so for me, and I've told this story on here before, but inverting the Y-axis, was the first time I did it was in a, a flight sim game as well for the Super Nintendo, I believe. And uh, that was like the first time where someone told me like, no, 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 down is up, up is down. And I at first I thought it was weird, but once I put the controller in my hands, I was like, oh, this is the way games have always, they've always been supposed to be played. <laughs> so it's funny that you had a, a similar flight video game based experience what if everything was planes <laughs> that's how i live my life <laughs> everything inverted i know yeah whenever we get together at parties jared likes to throw on uh videos of of people doing touch and goes and and plane maneuvers and just bores the pants off of everyone at the party it's always See, it's, it's always welcome i'm just not explaining it well enough so we'll watch another <laughs> couple hours i'll show you some 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 good practice i think it sounds this isn't yeah. even a joke like this is this isn't a bit this is something jared actually does at parties <laughs> i like planes well sharif um we've we've had um tanya on here we've had khalif on here and they've they've both told us quite a bit about spawn on me but i'm i'm curious to hear about it from your side man like when did when did you get involved with the spawn on me show uh well um so i've been friends with uh Khalif adams for years before 
um, Spawn on me. Um, we both lived in New York, and we had mutual friends. Um, so we'd hang out, and we'd talk about games, and we did a much earlier show called a, um, Character Select with another gr- group of friends as well. And like I had a podcast called um, Operation Cubicle where we, where we would talk about games as well. Um, so when he started Spawn on me, I was still doing Operation Cubicle, so I didn't necessarily have the bandwidth to join in as a full co-host. So I would appear on a show here and there, um, and we'd talk about kind of background stuff. Um, but um, Operation Cubicle kind of dropped off, and I thought that that would be a good time um, to jump in on Spawn on me. So I joined up. Um, so like I've always been, been in the background, but I officially became a co-host around the 60s, I believe, the 50s or 60s episodes. Um, so that's how I got and You there. guys are, and you're in the 200s now, man. And we, yeah, we sent out a congratulations to you on Twitter, but congratulations uh, in person. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we just recorded a fantastic 201 with, uh, Lee, with uh, Lee Alexander. Um, oh, yeah, that was a talking great about, episode. Yeah, so, 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 so we're looking forward to releasing that one. Um, and for those that join the Twitch chat live for that episode, we do have Lee's clean audio, <laughs> so oh. you know, it, it won't be the broken up internet connected mess that was broadcast. Over Twitch, yeah. So. Well, I mean, yeah. at, at this point, if if our listeners haven't checked out Spawn on Me, like what what are you even doing? Just get over there and take a listen. But if if you haven't listened yet, episode two hundred one is a great one to jump into because uh, Lee is a she is a game developer. She was uh, a writer on the Second Reigns game, and I, I mean, I assume if people are listening to our podcast, they like you know talk. They like listening to podcasts about game design, and you guys talk a lot about that with her on that episode. So, yes, thank you. I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Go listen to Spawn on Me. But Sharif, what do you? What's your favorite part of of Spawn on Me so far since you've been working with those guys? Um, I think my favorite part of it, um, and this was when I was just a listener and being a host, is hearing people involved in the gaming industry not talk about games. Um, one thing that I love about our show is that, you know, games are like the gateway, but, but we, we really want, whether it's a dev or a publisher or an artist or a journalist, we want to know them as people, right? So we... Mm-hmm obviously talk about the games but we also might deviate a bit and we'll hear them talk about other things like music or even politics or like other things so um my favorite part is like giving giving people that safe space where they don't have to be like on all the time and that they can give their opinions about other things so that they can show that they're a whole person you know that they have a variety of opinions on like other things so i think that we do a good job of helping to humanize people in the industry during a time where I feel like people just rail on game developers as if they're not people, you know, if, if they don't like something in, the, in their favorite game. They're real people with feelings. Maybe we should treat them like that. Who knew? Exactly. Yeah, it's hard. I, it, it's definitely hard sometimes, uh, you know, in the, the really vocal online world that we all live in, you know, especially around this whole, I don't know, like the recent EA thing with loot boxes, you know, it's... Everyone gets their pitchforks and torches out, and it's like, well, well, these are these are people trying to make a living. Like, let's try to keep that in mind before we start like sending bomb threats and shit. You know, exactly. So it's it's cool. I, I appreciate the work that you guys are doing over there. Um, Thanks. Let's let's talk a little bit about the the looks good series. 
you have a math looks good and a, and a games looks good series. What are those about? I started with the looks good series back with my original blog, science looks good, uh, which was in about 2001. Uh, when I chose to rebrand myself, um, using my full name, I used to go, uh, I had a number of online names, but I chose to sort of rebrand everything under Sharif Jackson. Um, and at that time I was doing a lot of work with, uh, NASA, um, so I had a science look goods blog, science looks good blog where I talked a lot about physics and space exploration and you, you, you know, like this is when like the space shuttle program was like winding down. So I was doing mm. a lot of, um, articles about that. Um, and at that time I kind of liked the looks good thing. So even before I had the ideas for it, I registered math looks good and gaming looks good because I knew. I might want to do something with those in the future. Um, and I ended up doing it. So with Gaming Looks Good, um, I started up a YouTube series that deals uh, similar to Spawn on Me in terms of it deals with diversity in games, but it's kind of a deep dive into one specific game. Um, so I go over, I do like a character analysis on the characters, um, on on like the culture that's being like presented and like i really try to hit on sort of race gender and sexuality as they're expressed in the game um and i've done it for a number of games from battlefield to for honor to street fighter four to all kind of stuff um so um yeah so like so like that's game looks good um math looks good is actually a separate business that i started it's a it's a tutoring business a math and science tutoring business um i have an engineering background um, and I, you know, I worked as an engineer for, for around 15 years and, you know, I always tutored part-time and it got to a point where my tutoring business grew to a point where I could do it full-time, um, and make it kind of financially work. Um, so I filed the paperwork and have a LLC for math looks good. So, you know, so I'm a full-time, uh, math and physics tutor all day, every day. That's what I do. And I'm actually in the process of starting up a, YouTube series for that as well, where I go over different problems and that kind of stuff, but with with my own kind of Sharif uh, flavor to it. So it's not going to be your standard Khan Academy kind of boring uh, exploration <laughs> of this stuff. Like I'm going to use real world examples and examples in hip hop and in video games and movies and that kind of stuff to to help explain things like force and acceleration and momentum and you know and that kind of stuff. So should be fun. Right on, man. Yeah, you're putting you're putting a lot of good out into the world. What's your yeah, so like? You. What's the ultimate goal with the uh, with like math looks good? I mean, the ultimate goal with math looks good is just to show that math is something that is all around us and that we use even though we're not using it, and that it's not this sort of abstract thing that only uh, you know like professors with cigars and uh, blazers with patches on it can do well. Um, you know, um, specifically I want people of color, especially women of, of a color to realize that it's not this thing that's out of reach, you know, that it's something that we all have the power to power to do well in and that it's something that is part of our everyday life. Because I think a lot of us grow up thinking that it's separate and only something that like, that like academics do. So that's really the goal of it for me. Now, would you, uh, would you consider making it into some sort of like TV show in the future? Is it, would that be something that you'd be open to? Interesting. Uh, funny enough, I did get approached. Uh, I can't really say who it was, but um, I was approached about some kind of uh, 
TV version of what I'm talking about. Um, the plans didn't really work out, um, but it's definitely something that kind of piqued my interest. Um, so the YouTube, you know, it's it's a bit of a test run for it. Um, I would definitely not be opposed to, um, you know, to um, doing a TV-based kind of version of it because, you know, I mean, I love what Neil deGrasse Tyson does. I know I love what uh, Bill Nye does, um, you know, and, yeah, I would, I would definitely love to have, you know, um, that in my wheelhouse as well. Right on. I, I'm, I'm just going to put that out in the universe, and hopefully hopefully someone can make that happen because <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be dope to see. Yeah, yeah, I would, I, I would love it. <laughs> right on. So today we're actually we're talking about accessibility in video games, and this was a topic that you had picked, Sharif. Right. And I'm, I, I was kind of curious, like what what made you land on this topic as something you wanted to discuss in this episode? Well, um, because in my work with Spawn on Me and Game Looks Good, you know, we we do usually focus on things like race and gender and um, sex orientation. Um, I think accessibility is another aspect of diversity that we often don't talk a lot about. And by we, I mean the gaming industry in general. Um, I think it's like one of those things that kind of goes under the radar and really only comes up if there's a huge like blow up. Um, but I think that it is something that's important that, that the accessibility market is a lot larger. And just because we want gaming to be the best thing for all people, um, I think it's something that's worth kind of diving into a little deeper and, you know, and like just making sure that our picture of a stereotypical gamer, um, you know, is not always somebody that's 100%, um, you know, able-bodied. So, so, um, yeah, that's, that's why I thought that it would be a good one to uh, dive into. I'm, I'm glad that you brought all that up. Cause I think that that'll make for some great discussion a little later in the show. But Jared, you want to start us off with uh, the history of accessibility in games? Sure, I would if uh, it was readily available on like, the internet. I like that I just teed you up for something that doesn't exist in our show notes. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. Appreciate it. We already talked about this. But uh, yeah, so, you know, like once again, it's one of those things that doesn't have a... It's no one invented accessibility in video games, but... Um, surely people have been looking at different types of accessibility across computing since computer interfaces have been a thing. Right now, an estimated 2% of the population is unable to play video games because of some type of disability, and 9% of the gaming population is only able to play games in a diminished capacity due to impairment. And, uh, you know, we, we see we see some work towards that. The most, I think, common form of um, accessibility option that we're, we're going to talk about here is uh, colorblindness. So you're starting to see that option in a lot more games, especially in uh, PC games, which, is, which has always been great. And uh, fun little fact, uh, the term A11Y is used as shorthand for accessibility, and it's because they remove the 11 letters from the middle of the word. Yeah, that was a that was that's a, that fun was a if you're fun typing fact. the word accessibility a lot. <laughs> that was that was a fun one to learn <laughs> at the at the end of doing research for this episode because putting together these show notes, I probably typed typed the word accessibility. It it has to be over a hundred times. And then I find this at the end. I'm like, oh shit, I could have been using this the whole time. But yeah, if you see if you see A11Y anywhere online, that's what they're referring to. They're talking about accessibility and computing and video gaming. And uh, I guess we should note that those statistics we read out earlier come from a uh, article called Game Accessibility, a survey. And it was written by Bei Yuan 
Elkie Fulmer and Frederick Harris Jr. I just want to make sure we get that out there too so people know we're not just making numbers up here. We have some sort of and source for this stuff. 9% of the gaming population, that's that's not insignificant to sort of just kind of move things along here. Like what? how are we defining accessibility for the purposes of this podcast? Because, um, you know, like I already put right up front, like the number one thing that I always think of is, is colorblindness and, and how that affects like a lot of people. Yeah, Sharif, when you think about accessibility, like what does that immediately bring to mind for you? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think about, um, you know, just the physical ability of controllers, like in terms of button placement, um, in terms of like having um, options to, you know, swap around even, you know, like the left hand, right hand thing even. Um, just like being able, you know, not that being left handed is, is a disability, <laughs> but but like uh, being able to like customize like controls because like there are some people that have certain um, ailments with their hands that makes it harder for them to reach out to like some of the like buttons that are on the extreme ends of a controller so like I think about that um, um, I also think um, um, about um, y- you know we we always see those like epilepsy warnings from the beginning of video games right mm. um, I also think about um, things like that because you know there there is a way to make games so that you don't have many of those events that could possibly set off you, you know a, a reaction from uh, someone um, that might suffer from that so like i definitely think of the visual in terms of the color blindness but like i also do think about like the physical in terms of of like physically playing like these games on a controller or on a mouse and keyboard so i think that when we're talking about accessibility there's kind of three main barriers that got brought up in this discussion there's the there's like sensory impairment which is kind of like what we're talking about with uh color blindness obviously there's other things that go into that like um being deaf, you know, not being able to hear the game or having diminished hearing. So, you know, things like subtitles would sort of fill in the uh, the needs of someone with sensory impairment, potentially. Uh, and then there's like the motor impairment that you're talking about. But then there's one that I think is maybe the last one that people think about, which is cognitive impairment. Um, the ability for people to comprehend the game. And this one I thought was kind of interesting because we have methods for... We, I, in gaming, there's a lot of methods to accommodate people with um, sensory impairments and motor impairments, but the cognitive impairments one is one that I think is provides um, more difficult challenges to overcome to allow those you know people who suffer from those impairments to to enjoy video gaming. Can you get can you think of like examples of games that you guys have seen that have made attempts to sort of simplify game mechanics through the use of options for people who have cognitive impairments? Like if some if someone has like a learning disability or um, or something like that? One that comes to mind is um, if you have a game that has that sort of a, um, you know, like a text-based kind of like puzzle game, um, they, they there are games that have options where you can kind of skip ahead. Um, or, you know, like if you fail something a certain amount of like times it'll it'll either automatically advance the the text for you or 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 it'll be like they'll give you a like option to pass through that um and i most recently saw that um in the game uh subsurface circular um by uh, bithel games um where you know it's it's like a uh, text-based kind of mystery game um and there's a bunch of kind of like puzzles that like do require like uh 
quite a bit of like high like literacy and like a reading comprehension. Um, but they also give you the option to skip past those puzzles if you're just interested in the um, in the story. So I've definitely seen that used um, in a lot of uh, t- text heavy games. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I hadn't for uh, for people who are trying to enjoy games with cognitive impairments. I I hadn't thought about the idea of potentially difficulty being a a factor for overcoming for overcoming that stuff. I when you were talking there Sharif, my mind instantly went to the AI director in the Left for Dead series which uh right Jared could probably speak to a little bit better than I can, but I believe that one, like if you were struggling in that game, would lower the difficulty for you. And while I I have a hard time sort of discussing difficulty in these ways, because I think difficulty and accessibility are sort of like two different things that might be kind of closely related. I think that that does present sort of like an, an interesting idea to have a game that sort of is trying to automatically figure out, you know, what your capabilities as a player are. But Jared, do you have anything to add to that? Especially since I, I brought up Left 4 Dead, which is more, or yeah, Left 4 Dead, which is more your wheelhouse. Not really, other than that, I think the main thing that we will probably be talking about a lot of time is the uh, physical impairments that people have to overcome to play a lot of games since, you know, pretty much every game uses a controller, you know, handheld controller or mouse and keyboard. When you're talking about changing game mechanics to overcome certain things, that was the first thing that also came to mind to me was that there are some games where it's like, oh, I'm playing here for the action and, you know, I will also enjoy the story. Or you can just switch it to I'm just here for the story and you get to bypass a lot of that other stuff. Right. Um, I, like Uncharted, right? Uncharted did something similar. Yeah. yeah see, I, I kind of threw us into... I threw this into I threw us into the deep end on this one because <laughs> I skipped right over sensory impairment and motor impairment and went right to the one that's like difficult to I think find solutions to but that's the one that I think is the most interesting for me but we can we can kind of reel it back in a little bit and uh, and 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 talk about these other things but Sharif I'm I'm interested do you have any experiences personally uh, around this this topic of accessibility in gaming anything in your own life where you've um, had to use accessibility settings yourself or someone close to you, anything like that? Uh, not me personally, but I definitely had some um, ex- experiences with uh, people that I've gamed with um, and, and that people that I've been in the same uh, room with. And I'll say that um, a lot of it just tends to come with the, you know, just tends to relate to the fact that, you know, as we get older, you know, we tend to get a little slower with our reflexes. And for people that are suffering from a um, ailment that impairs them like physically, then that drop off is like even worse. So I've definitely seen where people knew exactly what to do and they just couldn't get their body to react in the way that the game wanted them. So they literally could not progress because the game in question, um, you know, didn't really give them any option to not do it to not do that. Um, So they ended up actually giving up on the game, which kind of, um, was a shame because they really wanted to get through. Um, and this was kind of before the era of just looking up stuff on YouTube, like a walkthrough or just watching like the story on like a YouTube. So at the time, you know, like this person just couldn't, couldn't see the rest of the game, you know? And like, I, and like, I don't think any game developer wants that. Like, I don't think anybody 
that puts their heart and soul into developing a game wants to hold somebody back that really wants to see it. Yeah, you're, you are describing exactly uh, a recent experience that I had, which was this year for Father's Day, I got, I got my dad the God of War remaster series for PlayStation 3. And he, he, he really liked Heavenly Sword, so I was like, oh, here's, here's these other badass games that basically inspired Heavenly Sword. You'll probably get a kick out of these. And he enjoyed them up until he got to the first boss fight. And then he, I got a phone call from him and he was saying like, I don't, I can't get past this boss fight. You know, can you, can you come over here and and help me out? So when I got to his house, I I realized he was having trouble with the QTE and he's like, "I, I think I just have to hit circle fast, but that doesn't seem to be working. And I was like, okay, well, let me give you a try. You know, let me give it a try on here. And I was able to, to breeze through it. And I realized it's just because, you know, as as a gentleman who's getting older, he wasn't able to press the buttons as rapidly as it was requiring. So the first thing I did was like, okay, I'm going to hop in the options and see what this game allows you to, you know, to do. Is there, you know, difficulty options or QTE accessibility options? There was nothing. And that that was like the first time I've, I've I sort of had like a, an experience right away where I was like, this is, you know, this, this game is actually not allowing him to progress, even though he is one, you know, 100% aware of what he needs to do. He just can't physically do it. You know, that was kind of sad. I, I'm pretty sure he put that game away because of that single experience. I think there are a few games that at least more modern examples, I can't think of one specifically that have added options for like extended QTE um, timers and stuff like that, because I don't think that that's a problem unique to just your dad. I I know there's other people out there who have issues with those. And I think, you know, game design aside, uh, those do require like very quick reflexes. Yeah. And it it may have been because, um, you know, this was the remaster series. He's playing a game that's, you know, whatever, 12 years old. And at the time accessibility may not have been at the forefront of game design. You know, it may not have been on game developers' minds to think about all the ways that they need to accommodate gamers. I thought it was interesting that when they remastered it, you know, which was only a couple of years ago now, that they, that that wasn't then one of the considerations for options to go back in and, and reevaluate. You know, they went back in and looked at the graphics and the sound and that kind of stuff, but they didn't go back and say, like, how can we allow more people to enjoy this game, which... I thought it was weird, but you know, may may just be sort of a symptom of when that game was originally released. I think it also could be that they're all, they're trying. Maybe they weren't trying necessarily to bring new people in. I mean, obviously they want to sell as many as possible, but the goal might be to have people say, "Hey, do you remember when you played this?" and have more of the nostalgia than bringing in other people that couldn't play it or didn't play it. So my dad is is a big fan of Heavenly Sword, and he was able to get through that game the first time that he played it. I'm curious now if he would be able to get through that same game and and experience that nostalgia or if those QTEs would gate him from in, enjoying that. I just, you know, that was that was the first time that that I had um accessibility issues like actually affect me on a on a personal level. Um but I use accessibility options in video games all the time and I don't know if you guys do this too, but I play most video games with subtitles on. Do you guys do that? Oh, always. Always. I don't. I I I'm that's like the first thing I turn off. You turn the subtitles off. Yeah, I don't. I I don't like it. It, it breaks immersion for me. But I definitely there's a lot of lot of instances where they're they're handy to have around. 
but you also have a kid, so you're used to just like watching everything with subtitles because <laughs> yeah. no noise allowed. Yeah. <laughs> I watch everything with subtitles too. I do TV with subtitles, which my girlfriend hates. Um, and I do my games with subtitles. Well, subtitles are, are a weird one for me. I, I feel like partly it's because sound design in games is not at the level that like film and television are at. So I find that I just honestly have a have a hard time hearing what people are saying sometimes in games. And part of that is also because sometimes in games you people are talking while you have control of your character or while you have control of your movement. And like sometimes I'll be walking away from someone as they're saying something important to me that I won't be able to hear, but I'll read something at the bottom of the screen. I'm like, oh shit, that's like that's like important story stuff. <laughs> Don't forget this very one specific thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what I that's what I run into. So that's why I use that's why I use those options. I, and I also read a stat. It's like over fifty percent of video gamers use subtitle options in games. Most people turn them on. Uh, yeah, I, I believe it. I mean, most games, in my experience, are just horribly mixed. I, the first thing I end up doing in most games is turn the subtitles off because they, they're a little bit immersion breaking for me. Uh, and then I turn the music like way down. Like almost every game has the music way too loud and it makes it hard to hear any of the dialogue. So I think I just think working towards maybe mastering your audio, putting a little bit more production in your audio design might be an answer for some of that so besides some of the more obvious reasons that accessibility is a good thing in video games what are some you know positive aspects of including accessibility options in games that players might not think of right off the bat sharif so we already talked about sort of the subtitle thing um so like there are some people that you know have uh, issues with hearing and stuff and i do think that you know having that subtitle option in like any game is a big help, especially if you game in like an area that could be loud or if the sound on your system sucks or if, like me, sometimes you want to game and listen to a podcast or, uh, you know, or listen to a TV show in the background or that kind of stuff. So I think that accessibility is the main reason why subtitles are pretty much a standard in um, every game, you know, um, as they are, you know, on like um, any kind of TV series or a streaming um, option that like you might use. So I think that the widespread um, use of like subtitles is absolutely tied to accessibility as as a well. Um, I think customizable controls um, is like also tied to accessibility. Um, I know that on the console side, not every game does it, um, but I know definitely on the PC side, um, almost any game that you can completely remap your um, uh, controls, and that can definitely help out um folks you know that uh that do have some like issues with like reaching different parts of the keyboard um so i think that those are two big ones customizable controls um and uh, subtitles are probably two of the biggest pros that i can think of that that directly address accessibility but also affect everyone yeah those are those are great examples of how sort of accessibility spreads outside of accommodating just people who suffer from impairments but actually benefit all gamers so i think those are some some great examples to bring up jared is there any anything um positive that you could think of that maybe doesn't come to people's mind right away when they're thinking about accessibility yeah sometimes the colorblind options um are really useful especially in um shooters where you want more contrast between the things like the ui and the rest of the world uh, a lot i know people who turn on some of those options just to give your your 
your cursor a little bit more pop against the background or something like that. I've seen people do it in PUBG a lot and uh, just kind of helps things stand out a little more. Ubisoft is weirdly, I mean, I have, I have mixed feelings on Ubisoft totally, but we they come up a lot in our discussions. But I do know, at least in um, the last game that I played, which was The Division, they allowed you to basically customize every single HUD element on that. And you could move it around, change the opacity. And I could see that being a really positive uh, thing for, for some people. If you need to change the contrast on something or move move HUD elements to one side of the screen, um, I think that that goes a long way. And uh, I'd like to see more of that in games, being able to customize everything on it. And while we're sort of talking about colorblind options in video games, there's something I wanted to, to bring up, which is a game called Hue. And this was actually something I learned about from a talk that was given at uh, Game Connect Asia Pacific which was like a a game convention in Australia. And the talk was titled Designing Ethical Interfaces. It was presented by Elena Cole and John Kane. I reached out to them and made sure it was okay that I bring this up. So thank you to Elena Cole and John for for letting me talk about this on here. But they were talking about the game Hue, which was a game that's all about like color recognition. It's a puzzle game. Um, Imagine in your head, if you will, kind of looks like Limbo, except that the background is a, a bright color instead of it just being black and white. And you're solving puzzles in that game by altering the color of the background to match um, the color of like shapes and things that are in the foreground. So like if you match a green background to a green shape, essentially that shape disappears and you're able to bypass it because it's visually the same color as the background. That's kind of how that game, that's how that game operates. But that's a game that's like entirely based on you being able to recognize color. And and th- this is I, I'm bringing this up in relation to talking about how, uh, you know, how considering accessibility can be a positive for your game, because in their talk, they mentioned that Hue. Um, when they before they implemented sort of like accessibility options in their game, they were scoring at a certain degree on the. Um, on Metacritic, which sort of conglomerates all the review scores into one place. Uh, and then what they did is they they built in this system in their game where instead of just relying on the, the color of the background, it also presented symbols. And this was an option you could turn on and off, but there was like a, a symbol related to solving the puzzles as well. And they saw a improvement in their review scores. And this is, you know... We talk about, um, you know, these these accessibility options may only affect, you know, truly impact people in a meaningful way about 9% of the audience. But that 9% could be the difference between your review score appearing as like green or yellow on uh, on Metacritic. Um, so I thought that was I thought that was kind of an interesting example of, you know, maybe an unintended or a. Um, an under considered way that accessibility can, can have positive impacts on, on game design and on the way That's games are crazy received. to me that that didn't already exist when they released the game. Like color blindness is probably the number one disability, right. you know, the most common and for in a game entirely based around color, I'm sure that, that that could make it unplayable for a lot of people. Yeah. And this, I think, well, maybe gets into, a discussion that I, I kind of want to be careful around, but 
it's it's the idea that like they had this idea for a game in their in mind, right? Like we want to make this game about using color to solve puzzles. And if that's like sort of your artistic vision, I can see where it might be difficult to consider like how do we represent this another way, right? Like it 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 could even be seen as as them sort of jeopardizing their artistic vision for that game. And this is where I kind of want to be careful cuz I don't want it to come across like I'm I'm against accessibility. I think more accessibility options are are better universally. The more people that we can get into gaming and enjoying gaming, the better that video games will be. The more video games, you know, will exist, uh, the more perspectives we'll get within those video games and from outside those video games. So I think accessibility is a really important issue, but I don't think we can talk about accessibility without at least considering how some of these things might conflict with, say, artistic vision. Now, in this case, they were obviously willing to, um, you know, make a change that allowed more people to play and enjoy the game, and it, it definitely helped them out. But where, where do you guys land on this, Sharif? Where, where do you come down on this? Am, am I sounding like kind of a crazy person, or is there any is there anything to the to what I'm saying? I think so, because I think vision is high level. And what we're talking about is execution. Like to me, accessibility is on the execution levels and how do we implement this vision. So if you have a vision of, you know, I want to make a super difficult game, blah, 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 you know, games have difficulty modes. So, you know, um, it's very, I don't think there's any problem with just making a version of a game that, you know, other people might be able to get through. I don't think it's a problem to, if you want a game that depends on certain colors, I don't see any problem that's still making a colorblind mode that, you know, probably the majority of people that don't have the uh, colorblind issue will probably even notice that it's there, but you've still opened up your game to more people. Um, you know, and, and the same with like customizable controls and like subtitles and that kind of stuff. So I don't think the vision, which is like the higher level of what I want to achieve, um, is really a like a directly opposed to the implementation, which can involve accessibility. I think that there's always a way to bring more people in, and that is you know making games that are apl- applicable to the majority of the people that are playing games. Um, so yeah, I, I I think there's always a way. Now let let's talk a little bit about uh, a game like Dark Souls or a game like Bloodborne. And in those games, like difficulty is part of that artistic vision. Do you think that those games should have like a uh, an easier mode as as part of this idea of accessibility, or do you think that there's like a certain amount of accommodations that should be made to get as many people as as possible up to sort of like like a standard level of competency and then beyond that the game is just what it is like the artistic vision is just what it is and you have to be able to execute um and we've made all the accommodations that we can on our part but no i think you can always i think you can always do difficulty like the accommodation and the vision is when you select the normal level and it says this is the this is the developer's intended you know, experience. And then they have the harder levels, which are above what the developer even, you know, really has their intended experience. Like the hardest part is intended. Usually the harder levels are intended for those niche people that really, really want 
a talent a challenge which is going to be a smaller group than the middle so why not also have something on the bottom for a smaller group of like a people um that you know might have some accessibility issues um i think it's the same rationale if like you want to have this really 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 hard content um that probably only 0.01 percent of people will play like freaking nightmare difficulty or one kill <laughs> ender game or like that kind of stuff that like some games have i don't see any problem with applying that same rationale to having stuff on the lower level to make your game um accessible to more people so no i don't I don't see that as an issue. I think every game should like should like have it. Um, and as I said before, most games make it very clear which difficulty level is sort of the intended experience, which is usually normal or something like that. So um, yeah, I I think it's something that um, everyone should look to uh, implement in their games. I I think you said that really well and i i agree with the majority of of what you said for me the sticking point and people who listen to this show will probably get tired of hearing me talk about this is that i think difficulty is one of those areas that it, it is a little harder for me to sort of back down on that point i can understand how accessible how accessibility and difficulty can kind of be intertwined but Difficulty is one of those things that for me is like, it's hard to define. It's hard to nail down. Sharif, I just heard you on, on DLC recently, uh, which is also a great show and, and you were great on it. And you guys were talking about difficulty in relation to Wolfenstein in that game. And the, the conversation you guys were having was difficult in sort of the way that I'm, I'm kind of struggling to find the words here mm-hmm. in that, like, at a, like where do mechanics intertwine with accessibility, intertwine with difficulty. Like how do we how do we sort of like untangle all these things and say like if we've given you all the tools you need to play at the same level as what we will call like a proficient player and beyond this point it is difficult. You know, it it is just the difficulty part that's that's gating you. It's not it's not because you're in some way um impeded because we've made all the other accommodations necessary, but but now it's it's just because the artistic vision is blocking you. Right. There's some things that Wolfenstein does well, Wolfenstein 2, and there's some things that it does really bad. Um, so I I have st- I'm still playing through that game, and right before this podcast, I was I was going through it, and I was having a really hard time getting past certain sections of the of the game. Like it was it was super hard. I have no idea what difficulty they the developers intended that game to be played at, uh, and I'm one of those people who refuses to turn the difficulty down. But after hearing people talk about it a lot, I finally felt comfortable bumping it down, and that made the game way more enjoyable for me. Um, as far as accessibility in that game goes, you know, it has subtitles, it has uh, like three different colorblind modes, and obviously you can rebind any of your keys, but in combat and in practice of Wolfenstein 2, you get almost no feedback as to when you're taking damage. And I think that's what makes the game so hard. Mm. And when you talk about things like the artistic vision of the developer or whoever, um, I think that that's a little bit different from just broken game mechanics. I, w- I would describe that as a pretty broken part of Wolfenstein, the fact that you literally don't know when you're taking damage unless you're staring at your health ticker at the bottom. 
So when I when I bumped that difficulty down a couple of notches, it felt way better. And uh, you know, people who may be hard of hearing, that would make it nearly impossible to for them to know when they're getting shot in that game. It mm. would just be complete anarchy because there's almost no visual cues to tell you uh, when you're doing poorly. Yeah, interesting. And, and for as as much as I've thought about the ways that difficulty impact gameplay and game reception and accessibility. I still, I mean, I still find it difficult to sort of <laughs> properly voice the way I feel about difficulty. And I, I shouldn't be doing a podcast if I can't find the words. Why, why, is, why <laughs> did anyone let me buy a microphone? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a hard conversation to have. And it's one gamers have been having for decades. You know, I mean, it's not a new conversation. You yeah, know, I and, remember, I remember, I remember having this conversation when, um, um, so one of my favorite games for Super Nintendo, Contra 3, The Alien Wars came out. Um, and like most games, you know, in that era, there was an easy, norm, easy, medium, hard, you know, you know, easy, normal, hard. And if you play the easy mode, you get a whole bunch of other lives. Um, and after you beat, I believe the fifth level, it basically says, you know, you beat in the easy mode. Now, if you want a challenge, go to normal, Right. Um, and then if you beat the uh, normal mode, you get through the whole game, but you don't get the last phase of the boss. Right. Mm. And I remember having this argument with a friend, you know, you, you know, like one of those playground kind of video game arguments, which was, you know, if you play on normal, do you really beat the game? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cuphead, Cuphead brought this up recently too. There's been a lot of discussion around that, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and like, I'm like, look, if you want to play on easy, you beat it on easy. Like, I don't see, I, like, what's the problem with that? Like, I beat the game on easy. Like, I think a lot of it comes down to this, like, you know, um, well, I don't know if you guys allow swearing on the show, but. Oh, I've already um, done it several times. <laughs> but, but, um, but, you know, it's, it's like this, like, e-penis thing where, you know, you have to prove that you beat everything on the hardest level to be respected as a true gamer. Um, and it's like, no, like, if, if you beat it on normal, just say I beat the game on normal and that's it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm bad at video games, so I yeah. I've never had that problem. I'm just like, well, <laughs> I got through it. That's that's all I needed to do. And hopefully, in, in all the times that we've had this discussion, it's never come across that I'm one of those like get good guys. That's that's never been my stance. Like I I, I appreciate that people can play and enjoy, um, you know, games on their own terms. But I just I thought it was interesting to bring that up for for this particular discussion because you're just saying that they're not as hardcore gamer as you know I, I, I would never i would never <laughs> say that. i mean they're not but i would never say that <laughs> no truly I, I i i despise those like get good or play it on hard or you're not a real gamer that that shit bugs me and that stuff pisses me off um because that's like that 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 kind of language is specifically designed to like remove people from the discussion it's designed to remove them from the hobby and that's that's not what i want i i like the discussion around difficulty and i like i i like the way we've always had it on this show it's always been respect it's always been respectful and and hopefully in this case it doesn't come across i'm trying to be like anti-accessibility in regards to these things i'm, I'm open to hearing all of those arguments you know i i i like that sharif you you came in here with sort of a different opinion than my own i that's the kind of stuff mm -hmm. I, I love doing on this show yeah, that's why um, podcasts are awesome. Last time we had, on our last episode, we had Tanya in here, and we were talking about representation in video games. Do you think, Sharif, that there's crossover between accessibility and representation in gaming? 
Yeah, I mean, as as I said before at the beginning, I think accessibility is a a branch under diversity and representation that is often not addressed. Um, so yeah, in what, I, in what I, ways? Well, um, I don't think it's part of the conversation when, in general, the conversation about diversity in gaming is held at places like GDC, at E3, or like on you know major websites like Kotaku or IGN or or uh, GameSpot. You, you, you know, like they often have. Um, you know, conversations about representation, and it's usually about you know like more women in games, or um, more African Americans in games, or like more Latinos in the games, and you rarely see the same fervor and attention put toward um, making sure that accessibility options are there. And I think that is an issue of representation because you know we we want all gamers, anyone that wants to be a gamer, we want them to be represented within the games and 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 that's something that i think the industry is um you know not done um as good of a job addressing as publicly as they do the other things i mentioned yeah i think that sort of at their most fundamental levels the discussion around diverse representation in gaming and the discussion around accessibility are both uh about inclusiveness about trying to get as many people into the hobby as possible. So I think they are, I think they are definitely connected. Jared, what, what are your thoughts on this? In the recent past couple of years, you've started to see characters and protagonists in wheelchairs. I, I'm trying to find it right now, but my Google is failing me. There's, there's like a whole, whole game where you are in a wheelchair and mm. it was a third person game. I don't remember what it was. But yeah, for sure. Like it's it's another one. Like Sharif already said, like it's it's an overlooked aspect of representation. You probably don't have a lot of deaf people making games. You don't have you know a lot of people with physical impairments making video games. So of course those demographics are going to get unrep you know underrepresented. Um, there is one game that came out, or maybe it was not released yet. I can't tell. Uh, a video game called Perception, where you play a blind character, and you kind of have a sort of sonar that you can. There's like a button that you press, and it sends out, you know, sort of like a sonar thing, where you get a, a light representation of some things of objects around you, and it's a horror game. Um, so I think that is a pretty cool idea, you know, for representing people with disabilities in games. Uh, and also like a super cool concept. It's one of those things where it's like, wow, what if you were a, a deaf person and uh, you were in this horrific thing? It would, it's it's a, it's a neat spin. And I think there's a lot of stories that can be told in unique ways using video games. If, you know, uh, we, tr- we have true representation of those people. Now, was that the was that the VR game? Am I thinking of the right one? I don't think. No, I don't think it was. I don't a think VR it's VR. Game. Okay. No, it's 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 available on the Switch though. I did play a bit of it. How was it? Pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. I I, I didn't dive into it as much as I wanted to because you know, I'm, it's 2017, man. So many, yeah, <laughs> too many games. Oh yeah. Um, but but like I did mark it off as something that I do want to um, dip back into, um, probably sometime next month in uh, January when I'm going through my backlog. Yeah, there was there was a VR game that I. I I know of that was doing a similar mechanic. That's why I was probably getting it confused in my head. But yeah, that was that. I, I like that point that you brought up, Jared, about you know when some of these barriers are removed for people to be able to play and enjoy games. 
that then those people will end up working in the industry or contributing to the industry. And then we'll start to see that bleeding into the, you know, the way that characters are portrayed in games and representation within games. I thought that was a really great point. So I just wanted to, to echo that and, uh, and, uh, and make sure that that got heard. Cause that was, that was a really good point. Um, when we're talking about accessibility, what are some things that, that can enhance the experience for people and, and, and help out people with uh, certain disabilities. Like we, we we sort of broke it into broke it into three categories at the start of the episode. But what are what are some cool ways that you guys have seen to overcome some of that stuff besides what we've already mentioned? Disabilities can come in a lot of shapes and forms. So it seems like most people making these uh, different types of controllers for people with specific disabilities. It's kind of a it's a niche. Thing. They're a niche company, and usually they're just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Um, you know, people without use of their hands. I've seen uh, engineers create, you know, a, a full Xbox controller layout using like a straw that they can control with their mouth, or use, you know, if they have access to their their toes, they can use their toes to control a button. Um, I think that maybe you know, if there was more funding going towards that kind of thing for people with disabilities that would be a really cool thing to see um but you know, it's it's a it's a cost thing you know that there's every disability is not the same so it's kind of like a, a one uh a one-off thing when these things happen and sharif have you have you encountered any um accessibility options in games that you thought were like kind of cool or interesting or you'd never seen or or uh, experienced before that you go, oh, that that's like pretty neat the way that they tried to overcome this kind of, um, you know, yeah. impairment. Yeah, I mean, I thought one really cool one that I've seen in numerous fighting games, probably starting with the um, those Wii versions of like Mortal Kombat and stuff, which I've also seen put into the portable versions of Street Fighter, um, is they have the option where you can do special moves either by touching a part of the screen or by just mapping it to a button mm. um because i know that there's a lot of people that you know they would really love a fighting game but you know they just don't have the um dexterity or they might have uh, a, a a a uh motor impairment that doesn't allow them to pull off you know a quarter circle as quick as they can think it you know and i feel like that that opens up the game a lot to folks that you know that can think about what they want to do but but might not you know be able to do it because of their impairment and the reason i think it's cool is because i remember you know playing um you know street fighter on my ds and you know it was really hard on that like crappy uh nub of a joystick and the and and the controller to pull off a lot of the moves but i was still able to have a very enjoyable time by just using the like the the um, I forgot what it called I I think they actually called it like accessibility mode um, where like you, you know I could just tap on the left screen do a dragon punch tap on the right screen do a, a hurricane kick um, I thought that that was really dope um, so it really made me able to play the game in a portable mode and I probably would not have been able to play that game at 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 all um, so once again that was a great thing that I think something that was put in specifically for accessibility reasons, but has a lot more um, applications than that for gamers of, of all types. It's cool that you brought up fighting games because 
in doing research for this episode, I found an article called Why Game Accessibility Matters. It was written by Richard Moss for Polygon, and uh, we'll, we'll post a link to it. Um, we'll probably tweet it out at some point. But uh, in that article, he was talking about a, a gentleman who's, whose name now escapes me because my memory is pretty terrible. But um, he was a big Mortal Kombat fan and started to suffer from a degenerative like eyesight impairment that left him ended up leaving him blind. But he realized like after he was blind, he was still able to compete pretty well in Mortal Kombat just because of like the sound design in that game that he was able to recognize where people were on the screen and when it was time for him to take his turn and all of that kind of stuff. I thought that was, I thought that was really cool that sometimes when we talk about accessibility, we talk about these options that you can kind of turn on and off and stuff like that. But, Part of accessibility, um, I think Jared kind of touched on this earlier this episode, can just be designing your game well, can just be making it easy to understand and look at and listen to and, and all that kind of stuff. So I thought I thought that was kind of cool. I'm glad you brought up a, a fighting game so I could jump in there with that. I think we see a lot of this up. stuff. I think we see a lot of this stuff um, emerging in competitive games because... For the most part, you know, those are the games that people keep playing and want to be and create a community around and people, you know, they want to be included in that. Um, something like Dota 2, it has options to, you know, reduce particle effects and and the flashes on the screen and you can slow down the like sometimes the screen will shake. And you can turn that off. Uh, that's that's useful for people with epilepsy or other cognitive impairments. Uh, but also people just use that as every day, you know, get more frames, get 200 frames per second if they want it or to, you know, be able to see the action better. So I think outside of just the benefits for the people who, who really need it, it's it's useful for everybody to at least have those options. Now, since we're kind of touching on this a little bit, are there any companies that that we can highlight here that do a pretty good job of accommodating people with special needs in video games? Sharif, I'll, I'll pass it to you first. Is there any company that like springs to your mind as like they do they do a consistently good job of um, of thinking of all of the players? Um, well, I, I think um, I know I mentioned Subsurface Circular, but um, I also think that Bithel Games, other um, games like Thomas Was Alone and Volume, um, I think that those two games, specifically Thomas Was Alone, which like relies on you know these different colored blocks. Um, I feel like that, like they have a lot, a, a lot of options that addresses like you know, buttons and subtitles and like color blindness and like that kind of stuff. But also, just by making, it's a deep story, but it's also one I feel like that you could easily follow with, um, you know, with certain levels of like cognitive impairment as well. So like it's always like it's clear what you need to do. Like the puzzles are like small, but I feel like it's a game that you can enjoy on a on different levels right and like i think that like that's really a uh, key to sort of sort of the uh, mental and the cognitive impairment side is there might be some people that can't dive super deep into some of the dialogue but they can still enjoy what they're doing um and i think that like uh, bithel's games have uh done a great job with that right on and jared when you when you were mentioning esports as part of this the the company that leaps to my mind is blizzard and they've done work with um, with the guys over at uh, Able Gamers to implement options in like World of Warcraft. And this was like 
a, a long time ago. But then it seems like they've done a good job of carrying that mentality forward into their other games. And it, one of the other cool things about this, you know, in this discussion of accessibility is like back in the day, you released a game and that was it. You know, the, the game was what it was, bugs and all. And now we have, you know, Blizzard releases a game like Overwatch and they can iterate on it. And that I don't think Overwatch released with any colorblind options, but they ended up working those in through updates and stuff. So that's that's really cool to see as well that as as they have time to continue to work on the game and implement these things, that they, they can push out a game, get the money from the sales, and then turn that money into accommodating even more players to get them into enjoying the game as well. I think, I think that that's sort of a, a cool place that we're at in gaming. Um, but was there, were there any other companies that you could think of, Jared, or games that you could think of that, that do a good job at this consistently? I've seen games that have the option, like I said, to kind of customize the UI. You can turn on and turn off like the blood on the screen when you take damage. I'd like to see more things like that. Um, I actually got... I, th- I think it came with my motherboard. There's a third-party piece of software called like Audio Radar or something like that, and it would overlay over games and f- with games that have you know like stereo sound left and right and s- simulate surround sound. Uh, it would give you a little visual representation on a radar of which way that sound was coming from, and I thought that was kind of a neat thing for people who you know might only have hearing in one ear or no hearing at all. That way, that games that rely on being able to uh, directional audio, uh, they're able to to also you know use that mechanic, uh, but in a different way. Yeah, that's great, man. Like, it's interesting because we like I think a lot of times when we talk about accessibility, we're talking about the game developers themselves. But it is cool to see the way that other companies approach that, like that you know just comes with your video card or i mean obviously mad cats rest in peace they they seem to carve out <laughs> a market for themselves um you know trying to help out a, a group of people who you know for one reason or another may not be able to enjoy video games on the same level as as people who are you know 100% capable so and I think in many cases, it's it really just comes down to really good game design. When you uh, play a good game and it feels good, like especially a shooter, and you think everything, you know, there's just that general feeling of of a flow and everything feels tight. A lot of that has to do with the feedback that you're getting from any situation, any one situation. There's multiple forms of feedback. There's a visual cue. There's an audio cue. You know, if you're playing with a controller, it vibrates. Uh, and I think that just taking those things into consideration in all games really would go a long way and not just these one-off accessibility options that, you know, we're, we're kind of talking more about here. Yeah. Now what, what can the game industry do to improve in regards to this, in regards to accessibility, Sharif, how, how can the industry get better at making games more inclusive to those people who have a disability or an impairment? Well, I think just like with other issues of representation, you got to start at the beginning. Um, it's not something that you, you know, last few months of game development, you say, oh my God, we got to throw in uh, accessibility. Let's or bury the subtitles in the video options for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's it, It's got to be a part of the initial structure when you're talking about these games. And if you don't have that stuff in-house, if you don't have those people in-house, 
and that's what that's where you reach out to external you know like consultants or like um other parties that specialize in it but you have to do it at the beginning because not only will that you know make sure that those options are in there in the correct places but it'll also mean that the structure of your game might change which i said before it shouldn't um it shouldn't change in a way that it detracts from the vision but it is something that can influence how you build a game um, which is more the execute the execution of that vision so um yeah i i think that that's really you know some of the you know most important things to be successful from an ex- from an accessibility point of view mario odyssey comes to mind in this discussion because i know that there's a mechanic that you have to hold your switch and or you have to shake the controller to do a special move i know most people say it's not necessary to use this the hat spinny move that you can do but that's the only way that you can do that um, and I'm wondering if someone came to Nintendo and said, hey, this is a really stupid idea if this is the only way you can do this. And so they made that mechanic. Uh, you could bypass it in other ways. I wonder if that was an afterthought because that, that was a really weird decision in uh, an otherwise like super polished game. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I agree. I remember when I found that out, I was like, there has to be another way to do this. <laughs> but nope, there is not. Yeah. Any game that doesn't allow me to turn off its weird motion controls automatically goes down like five points in my book oh yeah it's just (laughs) but Sharif I I think the point that you made is a great one that when you start designing a game and we talked about this in our last episode as well like with representation is it's not something that could be last minute you have to be thinking about it from the very beginning and then that will guide your design process as you're making the game and I, I think that right now the issue is just that a lot of people don't they're not aware of it, of, you know, of issues that affect certain gamers. I think that there could be things done to better educate game designers. And part of the education I think is making designers aware of resources that are out there to help them. Cause there are a lot of resources to help you implementing colorblind, uh, control colorblind mechanics and subtitles and, and all of those kinds of things. I mean, I mentioned able gamers earlier. They're like a great place to start, but if you don't know that they exist, you don't, you don't know to go to them for recommendations on the best way to implement these things. Um, in the, in the limited research that I did for this, for this episode, it it seemed overwhelmingly the feedback that I was, I was seeing from a lot of people who are advocates for, accessibility options in games they were saying like look this stuff is easy if you if you think about it at the beginning if you get to the end of your development and you decide you want to implement this stuff that's why that's when it's hard that's when it costs you money it's if you do it at the beginning you, you know you work it into your development cycle and it doesn't doesn't cost you much but it's when it when it's at the very end is is when it's expensive yeah and 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 the weird thing is that's literally project management 101 like anyone that's worked for any company and done been a part of any project knows that if you leave stuff to the end it's always going to be more expensive that's when you gotta either call the consultants that are going to bill you some crazy amount to try to fix it or you got people working all-nighters or all kind of stuff like it I, i i just never understood why people for some reason think games work any differently from any project whether a technical it type project or not like you got to plan yourself up front i suspect as a large portion of the gaming mainstream audience 
ages, we're going to start to see more and more of this. It's it's unfortunate that it doesn't happen sooner than that, but you know, I'm looking forward to the days when I'm in a nursing home and I can ha- be in a land party with other people. Now, am I going to have like crazy arthritis and have to use some sp- crazy controller or will it just like plug into my brain and I get to interface with it directly? Uh, we'll see, but uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping as, as I get older, uh, video games are going to start to mature along with me as well. It certainly seems like the, in regards to accessibility, that the industry is getting better. But I think like progress in, in most regards, it certainly does seem to, to be slow. Um, and, you know, there's like the big obvious ones that people implement, colorblind controls, uh, haptic feedback, subtitles, those ones. But there's a lot more like subtle, um, you know, issues that people have or underrepresented that, is, you know, issues that people have. And I don't know that, you know, as game designers, they've even really figured out ways to accommodate all the the types of ways that people are, you know, impeded from enjoying video games. Like the stat we read at the beginning, there's 2% of people who literally just can't play video games due to a disability. Well, you know, what can be done to get those, that 2% of people into gaming? You know, there's still obviously room to improve in regards to this stuff. Start early, you know, and as I said before, you know, focus on your vision and let the execution bring in as many people as possible into play your game and experience that vision. I mean, that's really what it's about to me. Right on. Cool. All right. Well, if that's it, let's move into listener feedback. Remember, if you have any questions or comments about accessibility or any of our previous topics, you can always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like to hear us talk about, send those along as well. All right, Jared, what do we got? Our first feedback comes from Alex Vogelman on Twitter, and he's talking about our survival horror episode that we recorded with Andrea Renee. He says, horror episode and no mention of Amnesia, The Dark Descent, one of the most terrifying games I ever turned on. No fighting, limited resources, and the main mechanic is trying to preserve sanity and rebuild memory of how you ended up in a haunted mansion. Uh, I think we maybe talked about it briefly. It may have been cut from the, the final episode, but Amnesia is definitely, I would categorize as a survival horror game, uh, but it's just not one of my favorites, so we didn't talk about it too much. Well, we did talk about, in that episode, we talked about Outlast, which yeah, kind of falls into this kinda... category, and same thing with um, Alien Isolation, same thing where you're like really disempowered, and it's about hiding instead of fighting. I think the, I think sure. the reason that Amnesia is kind of cool in this discussion, and we didn't go into, is that idea of maintaining your sanity in that game. Um, I think one of the things I lamented in that episode with Andrea was that I think most horror games are sort of just surface level horror. Like when you're shooting a zombie, it it doesn't really represent anything besides just a zombie where I think in, in film and literature and other, you know, other media, we've reached a point where, you know, like when you're shooting a zombie, it represents something beyond itself. And I don't think video games have sort of achieved that. So I, I, appreciate that amnesia is is reaching for something further than just sort of the surface level hiding from a monster that some of those games rely on. Uh, Alex went on to say that uh, he prefers that style of horror versus a Resident Evil type game like you were just talking about. 
And he says he's on the same side as Andrea there. I didn't like the locked... Oh, in Resident Evil, she, he doesn't like the locked camera and bad controls and clunky gameplay. It wasn't scary. It was annoying. Uh, and I think that's in response to my comments was by design, Resident Evil had those locked off cameras and it definitely added like a cinematic uh, tension to the whole game. But uh, it doesn't hold up that well anymore. I understand like the reasons behind it. Um, but I still I still enjoy it looking back. Um, games like Amnesia and Outlast, I don't enjoy as much. I don't think there's enough interactivity. I don't think there's enough video game there for me. Uh, just running around and hiding, I felt, got really tedious. So they're not my favorite. Sharif, are you a a, a horror game fan? Uh, it kind of depends on the game. I mean, I'm a probably the last horror game that I really, really, really enjoyed was uh, Resident Evil Revelations, um, which I really liked a lot. It originally came on the 3DS. They did a couple of remasters for... Um, uh, PlayStation and Microsoft, and they actually just released on the Switch as well, those same HD remix. Um, I really, really love that game. Um, it's, it's, it's like a creepy ship. Um, you're always kind of like looking, looking around your back. It's a lot, it's a lot more of the slower paced, like Resident Evil 1 and 2, as opposed to Resident Evil 4, kind of action, kind of running gun. Yeah. Um, I also really like the Fatal Frame series as well, um, which I don't think is that big in the States, but, um, really, really cool game where you essentially have to use a camera to be able to see these sort of ghosts. Um, really, really creepy. And Resident Evil Seven, um, I guess you can. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's a horror game, I guess, but it didn't feel scary. Like Resident Evil Seven to me. Now, now I did not play it in VR. I, I did hear some people in VR saying, "Yeah, I hear that's like a scary. completely different experience." Um, I I like the game a lot, but I I. It was more like hilarious and uh, funny to me than actually, you know, having my heart racing, um, lot like I was in like uh, Revelations. So, uh, so, so yeah, I I do like a few horror games. It's definitely not the top genre. Like I don't play. Um, like I see people streaming. Like you know, like uh, I guess if you call Five Nights at Freddy's a horror game, and you know, or like these like jump scare games. Usually, usually not my thing. Um, but there are some I like. Now, Jared, how do you respond to Sharif saying that Resident Evil Seven wasn't very scary? Uh, it it, <laughs> it, you, it was. I think you were pretty vocal good, like, on the show. World... That you were afraid of that one. Yeah, <laughs> it's just. I mean, it, the way I felt about Resident Evil Seven applies to a lot of horror games. It just it it wasn't. It, it was scary for me, but it was also like mostly stressful, like waiting for something to happen or something to pop out. Um, and yes. I really liked that game. It was just not something that I came home and like after work and wanted to relax and sit down and play. It's like I need to carve out part of my weekend to finish this because uh, it definitely was tense. I don't know how scary officially that it was. Yeah, I I agree with you. It was a tense game, but I wasn't like like I find a lot of games to be tense. Yeah, I, yeah. I've been, play, was, I've been was, playing Horizon Zero Dawn, and like that that's not classified as a horror game. I don't think anyone would call that a horror game, but there's definitely moments in that game that are edge of your seat kind of stuff. Uh, we got some more feedback from Ashley in California. She wrote us again. She was talking about our last episode. She says, uh, our, our last episode was with Tanya. She says, such a great episode. I really enjoyed it. Tanya is freaking hilarious and has a ton of interesting thoughts and experience about the struggle of diversity in video games. It can get better, and I admire her persistence in making that happen. I was shocked and delighted to hear that majority of gamers today are not the typical straight white male. Uh, I love that, and it needs to be recognized by the industry more. Nice interview, guys. 
so uh yeah thanks thank you for for listening to that it's uh it's an important conversation i'm, I'm really glad that tanya was there to, to to walk us through that yeah yeah thank you ashley for bringing that up and, and again thank you to tanya because that was that was a, a really great conversation we had and and um uh, the more that we can sort of you know echo those issues of of diversity and stuff hopefully the the better it, it gets for all of us so thank you ashley thank you tanya and uh, before I forget it, thank you, Alex, for the the last comments as well. Uh, and one more thing, Steve, uh, we have a a caller on the line, real quick, um, and I think he's calling from you from uh, Apache Junction. Okay, let's hear it. Hey, Stephen, what have you been up to? This is your daddy, Mark, and uh, I'm just up here at the house, and I was just plucking some chickens today, and I got to thinking about you, of course, you know. Anyway, I just wonder how that show of yours doing. All right, you get back to me, son. All right, bye. Oh, that's right. That that's what I was going to uh, call you about. Hey, listen, I was, I was looking at that new uh, video game, Donkey Kong. Is that what it is? Uh, anyway, I just want to let you know there's no donkey in there. So if you're thinking of it, it's going to have a donkey, it's just got some sort of monkey. Anyway, okay, boy, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> oh God, he's, thanks for calling he in, Mark. Sound, we he sounds it. like the uh, like Scooter from Borderlands. You remember Scooter? Yeah, Get I don't know. Also, <laughs> he also maybe like calling from the inside of a, a cave or something. <laughs> a little bit of echo in there. I, uh, I thought he had a question, but it seemed more that he just wanted to talk about Donkey Kong. I, I guess. Don't know. Well, I he, don't know what that was about. He's mentioned Donkey he Kong right, before. Though, it's like his no one donkey. touchstone in like video game knowledge is that the video game Donkey Kong exists. <laughs> Thank, thanks, <laughs> <Hey>. Dad, <laughs> for that. But but your dad's right. There's no donkey in Donkey Kong. He, he is 100% correct. Yeah, he's, so he is correct. Yep, he is. And I, I always forget to mention this whenever we take one of my my dad's inane phone calls. Is uh, he has a he has a podcast of his own. Um, it's called All Things Photography. He talks about his passion, which is photography. If you didn't guess it from the name of the podcast, so if anyone listening to this show is interested in photography, definitely check that one out. Because I always feel terrible for forgetting to mention it when when we bring up his uh, his stuff. But he. Uh, He's he's trapped in 2004. Like he he the I think the only game he plays anymore is Unreal Tournament 2K4 or That's 2K3. A good game. Nice. <laughs> it was oh, a great 2K3. game. Oh, it is. Oh, it is a great game. Yeah. But it gets worse than that. Like he <laughs> he uh, he plays like the same level. It's like one level in that. Just game. against bots or what? Yeah, against bots. He loves it. It's great too because I I uh I can always tell when he's playing it because he always like has the volume turned way up and he's just jamming out. Oh, that game. I love your dad. Hey, <laughs> hey, I, I I will say for for a number of years when the original well when the original Unreal came out, um I was in college and my friends and I we would like only play on deck sixteen, uh over Which one? and over Whoa. and over and over again. What was the one with um, the uh the facing towers that were like in oh space? Facing, worlds. Face, facing worlds, two worlds, yeah. yeah. That was, that was a good one. one. Just sniping people as you run across the oh middle of that God. map. That wasn't even like great... a fun game. It was just like to get your headshot accuracy down. That was one of the. <laughs> it was a great CTF map. Yeah, it was. Incredible. Um, well, thank you again for for calling in, Dad. Always love hearing from you. I'll see. I'll see you tomorrow <laughs> when we we have to go take my car into the mechanic. <laughs> what what else? What else can we talk about? What other Donkey Kong things can you guys discuss on the way there? <laughs> I know. I guess that I'll, I'll have to bring it up with him. And I I don't see. I don't think he's ever actually played. He might have played like the old original Donkey Kong, but I don't think he's played a Donkey Kong since then. I don't think he's touched Donkey Kong Country or anything. <laughs> oh, he he would probably love Donkey Kong Country. It's a great game. 
Oh, one of my one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I got the uh, the SNES Classic waiting for my son to turn five years yeah. old, and uh, that's what I was about to say. <laughs> get that classic; it's on there. So we only got we only got like three and a half more years to wait, and then we'll bust that thing out of the box, and then I'll introduce my dad to Donkey Kong Country. Yeah, yeah, and and he can play as Donkey Kong in Super Mario Kart as well, so he can get his Donkey Kong. He can get his Donkey. <laughs> I'm sure he's I'm, he's he's going to be thrilled about it. I'm sure. <laughs> Sweet. Um, that's it for feedback today. All right, that's going to do it for listener emails. Again, you can always send us your emails at podcast at gbfeature.com. You can also connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Send us your emails. Send us your feedback. We love hearing all of it. So please. And that's going to do it. That's going to do it for this episode. But before we get out of here, I want to thank Sharif Jackson. Sharif, thank you so much for being here, man. I, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work, um, and I appreciate the the good stuff you're putting out into the world. Uh, where, where can people keep up with you? Uh, so you can keep up with me. Um, if you go to my website, SharifJackson.com, that's S-H-A-R-E-E-F, uh, Jackson.com. Um, and you can go to the My Projects button on the top. Pretty much has links to... Everything. Spawn on me. The game looks good. The math looks good. To my Twitch page, um, where I broadcast every Friday um, afternoon. Um, and it has links to my Science Looks Good stuff that I talked about. And, in, and you know, in the general bio and pics and all that good stuff. So, you can pretty much get to anything from there. So, go to SharifJackson.com. Right on. Well, thank you again. And this is, this is a little bit behind the scenes, but we're recording this one late at night. So, um, thank you for taking time out of your your late evening to to do this. Um, I know scheduling oh, was uh, kind of hectic, and you've been really busy lately. So I, I really appreciate you um, making the time to be here with us. Oh, absolutely, man! This this is a great time. Thanks for having me. Lots of fun. More Donkey Kong Kong. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there'll be more in the future. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the Donkey Kong Minute. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, as a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. Uh, if you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner. And as always, we want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you.